Okay, thank you everybody. David G, alcoholic and addict of many sorts. Grateful for recovery date of October 8th, 1994 in Alcoholics Anonymous and October 1st of 2019 in Sexaholics Anonymous. Very grateful to be here tonight. Grateful for my friend Ashley and Dennis as their service has just been beautiful all the way through this thing. We're in our 25th week of this now. We have studied this book in depth all the way through. We have looked at the main problem. We've seen what the root of our trouble is. We come in, for some reason, we seem to think that it's drugs, alcohol, sex, lust, overeating, undereating, whatever the problem may be. That's the affliction, of course. That's what's in our face that has to be dealt with as far from being what the actual problem is. And we've seen these weeks how that sets up in the mind, how these ideas, concepts, beliefs, attitudes, prejudice, all of these things, they just flood us. I feel like I'm connected to power. If I'll connect to power, if I can get out of self, if I do this, I, 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 self is still running the entire show and I don't even know that's happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's showing up in my vocabulary and every time I talk, it's just, it's just unbelievable. By now, if we have carefully followed directions through this process of the book, we've tapped into that unsuspected inner resource. We have begun to identify with the spirit, a different voice, if you will. We begin to see the narrative. We begin to see how it plays out in our life and thoughts. A thought shows up. It brings forth an emotion. We take action based on that emotion, and the reality is whatever that is, usually pretty destructive for most of us. And I just think, you know, if I could just stop doing that, everything would be okay. But what I don't understand is there's a lot of fears and a lot of resentment and a lot of self-hatred and I'm not good enough and I'm damaged and I was never enough and I'll never be enough and I'm not smart enough and I'm dumb and I'm ugly and I'm fat and stupid and all this stuff just chattering at us all the time. But as we come through these first 11 steps, we begin to have a new experience. We begin to see that that ain't true. Only in the mind, that narrative has told us these things. And so now we begin to pick this apart and have a new experience. We've seen step 10 and 11 in depth. We've seen that these are major, major components in walking daily with spirit. And without those two, a consistent practice of those two, most of us start to slip back, not always to drink or use or act out or whatever it may be, but we begin to slip back in consciousness and we begin to get very afraid again at certain things. Something will show up, we'll get very angry, you know, I react on that, I'm a rageful guy. And so whenever that starts showing up again, I need to stop and take a look and say, hey, well, what's going on here? How has self reemerged? So by the time we get to chapter seven, which is where we're at tonight, working with others, notice how it doesn't say that we're working on others. I know for a long time, I felt like, especially in my walk, that I had to do this to help that guy, and I had to do this and to help the guy. And the guy would even ask me, what do I need to do? What do you want me to do? I just tell him, I don't want you to do anything. Just do the work. That's all I'm asking you to do. If you don't do that, then the only thing I'll do is let you go. And so a lot of people have told me that I'm very hard when it comes to sponsorship. The way that I was sponsored through this process and the processes before this process was by a man that did not put up with any BS at all. We either did the work or you went home, one or two. didn't really matter. And, uh, you know, I can remember being so mad at the guy one time and, and him telling me, you know, normally I'd throw fists on a guy like that. But I remember him telling me, you know, I'd rather make you mad as come visit your grave. 
And I've never really forgot that. I really haven't. But I believe in order to lift one up, you must be on higher ground yourself. And I have that written at the top of how it works in my book. In order to lift one up, you must be on higher ground yourself. We cannot stay clean on yesterday's shower. We just can't. Yesterday's miracle is not sufficient for today. It's just not. I need a new one. And the only way for me to get that now is to really connect with my brother. And I'm going to do this because I want to, not because I have to. Now, in the beginning, it may have been because I had to, but it's not that way anymore. I do this now because I want to. I want to share this experience. I don't know of anybody that has not awakened from self that does not want to pass that on to someone else. If we don't do that, then we're still in self. And so our book begins tonight on page 89, Working With Others, Chapter seven and as ashley said this is the entire 12th step it's going to be set up in two parts now the this is the first visit from 89 to 96 this is what we call 12a or 12 part one this is the first visit someone would come to ask me to sponsor them in earlier years and i'd say yeah you willing to go to any links let's go there's so many instructions in here that go against that i don't even know where i ever picked that up at probably heard it at meetings truth be told but I had no idea that there's a process here that we go through prior to ever sponsoring anybody. 89 to 96 is the first visit. This is before I even agree to sponsor someone. And if I don't know this chapter, then I'm not going to know what to do. I'm going to say, yeah, okay, I'll sponsor you. Let's go through the steps and we'll go through as best we know. And we'll both still be asleep to self. And here we go down that road again. One, if not both of us are going to fall out. And if not, drink, use, act out, whatever it is, we're both going to fall back to sleep, and it's craziness anyway. So we're going to start on the top of 89 where it says this, practical experience shows that nothing, and that's a key word, nothing, will so much ensure immunity from drinking, acting out, drugging, lusting, whatever it may be, as intensive work with other alcoholics. If you remember in the front of the book, all the way back over, and forward to the second edition, this is when Bill had went to meet with Bob. Bottom of the page of XVI said, this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. But it also indicated that strenuous work, those two words right there, one alcoholic addict, whatever, with another is vital to permanent recovery. If I'm looking for permanent recovery, there's something that's very vital here in order for me to do. And if I don't do that, then chances are, at best, I stay sober. I'll fall back to sleep pretty quick. So back on page 89, if you don't have a 1913 dictionary, and you've heard me say this many times through the study, I encourage you to download that. Get that app because it is so important, the words and the way that things were worded then versus the way they're worded now. It helps this book make a whole lot of sense. So when I look up the word immunity, and that's what it says right here, nothing will so much ensure immunity. And the definition of that is freedom from any exemption or from any charge. Freedom. I mean, it's done. It's over. So the book tells me nothing is going to so much ensure that freedom from any exemption, from any charge, as intensive work with another alcoholic. It, talking about intensive work, works when other activities fail. There's many times that I've went to a meeting 
I was not connected that day. I prayed. I wasn't connected that day. I went to a sweat ceremony. I wasn't connected that day. I went to church. I wasn't connected that day. I'd done all of these things. But when I reached out to help another alcoholic addict, I connected that day. It, talking about intensive work, works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message. And we'll hear this a lot in the fellowship. My message, my message, a message, you know, this message is what my book says. The things that we've been doing for 25 weeks here. You can help when no one else can. What a promise for guys like us and women like us. I mean, we're talking more than doctors. We're talking more than psychiatrists. And I'm not saying that I have that education by the least because I most definitely don't. But I've walked in these shoes and I know what to do. And I can carry this message where they fail. And it's not that they didn't try and it's not that they're failures. It's just that we have the experience here. And so we can help when that's a beautiful promise. We can secure their confidence when others fail. It's hard to secure somebody's confidence like us. You know, I think if... If you remember that, all the way back over there on page 18 of the book, which is about the third paragraph down where it says, but the ex-problem drinker, talking about page 18 in the book, but the ex-problem drinker has found the solutions properly armed with the facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours and until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And we see it again here. That's part of our 12th step. Look at what it says. Remember that they are very ill. And in my book, I have even in the fellowship, especially in the fellowship, because when we come in here, we put away that what medicates us, what gives us temporary relief, and that quits working for us. And then we come in and we're not able to use that. And we're not able to connect to the power. Man, we're ill, very ill, very ill. So remember, they are very ill. And I need to remember this with new guys. And I'm guilty of this. I get aggravated. I get frustrated. There's times that I, you know, I run them off or whatever it is. My book says don't do that. Remember, they're ill. I mean, give it a chance. Life will take on new meaning. Anybody ever come in here with a dead end thinking, oh, my God, life's over? There's no way that I can ever, ever regain anything in life. Man, what a promise right here in our 12th step. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, not only to talk about it, not only to hear about it, but to watch it. I've watched people in this very many. I've got men on this call right now who have recovered from a hopeless state of mind. I mean, recovered. It's not just sober. <laughs> They've recovered. And so to watch loneliness vanish. Anybody coming here lonely? Anybody lonely after they've been in here for a long time? We're going to watch this stuff take place as we reach out to our brother and connect with the experience that we've already had to see a fellowship grow up about you. I've seen that right here on Tuesday nights. I've seen that on other nights to the meetings that I go to. I've seen that with the Freedom Seekers group. I've seen 30 men come together and begin to work as a unit and begin to recover from sex addiction. That's amazing. That's amazing. Most of them have sat around in the fellowship for years dying. Even had sobriety, you know. So, I mean, big difference between sobriety and recovery. We've talked about that all along. So, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. That's one thing we know for sure. We don't know a whole lot about a whole lot, but we know that right there. You're not going to want to miss this deal. And if you do, you never did get it to begin with. So, Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. I used to go to meetings thinking this is all about David, all about David. 
It's not all about David. It tells me right there what the fellowship is about. Frequent contact with newcomers and each other. That's the bright spot of my life today. Perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. What about even in the fellowship? You know, some in the fellowship that really don't want to recover. They want to come around and hang around and get sober a little bit and do this and that, but they don't really want to recover. I have people talk to me all the time about taking them through this process. And when we do what we're fixing to talk about on this next page, many of them will, will back off right there. And that's, that's okay. It really is because if you're not ready, you're just not ready. I appreciate the honesty. I really do. But if you're not acquainted with any, it says you can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals, or even go to some AA meetings. I guarantee you're going to run into quite a few. They'll be only too glad to assist. You don't start out as an evangelist or a reformer. And I think for so long I did that. It was, you have to do this. You have to, have to, have to. But I wouldn't allow anybody to talk to me that way. But that's exactly what I was doing inside of our fellowship, and that's a big no-no. It, it just is. You have to understand self. You have to know about this. Why can't you see? Can't you see? No, you can't see until you can see, and that's just the way it is. Most of us have taken a pretty hard beating before we've been able to see anything. I know I did. And so, unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. Remember those old ideas, those prejudged ideas, that's self. That's one of the soldiers of self. I always want to watch for that. Here's a promise. You be handicapped if you do. <laughs> I guarantee you. Uh, ministers and doctors are competent, and you can learn much from them. Key words here, if you wish. But it happens because of your own, whatever it is, experience. You can be uniquely useful. People tell me all the time, you're not unique. You guys aren't unique. Yeah. By God, we are, according to that page right there. I'm very uniquely useful whenever it comes to this part of life, if I've received this message, if I have done the work up to this point, and I have a message to carry from spirit, not from self. I promise you, I'm uniquely useful, and I am in a lot of areas of life today. I'm not saying I'm unique in a prideful way. I'm not saying I'm unique whenever it comes to the self or any of that. I'm not saying that at all, but I promise you we are uniquely useful here, very much so. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. That is our real purpose on page 77, if you remember. All right. Now, before I sponsor anyone today, and I did not know this prior to coming through this work three years ago, I had read this book. For me, this was good reading material when we got over to these chapters. It was just pretty good stuff we kind of glanced at and read about. These are very solid directions. This is called an interview process. In the 1930s, Bill and Bob, if you read the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and know anything about it, they always did an interview process with men. This is what that looks like. Wow. How did I miss this? Stood another book, talked the book, learned the, uh, yeah, all this. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's probably going to be the sponsee, here's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to find out all I can about him. Where are you from? Where do you live? How old are you? Are you married? You got any children? What's your job? What's that look like? What's your hours? If I give my time to you through the process of this book, what does that look like for you? You know, where were you born? Well, I mean, all of this. I want to find out everything that I can possibly find out about this man. That is my very first instruction to do right here. But here's the key. If he does not want to stop drinking, acting out, and do not waste time trying to persuade him. I know people that do that all the time. They'll call a guy two or three days later. Hey, man, you know, you were supposed to call me back. You never called me back. I don't do any of that. I do what this says right here. 
I don't waste no time trying to persuade him. I mean, if you've come to me and you back out, that's on you. So it says you may spoil a later opportunity. That's a promise. But look at these words. This advice is given for the family also. There's another thing you'll hear in our fellowship. We don't give advice here. I don't know if you ever heard that, but I heard that a lot where I came from. My book tells me right there, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I have some advice to give now based around this message. I promise you I do. But it has to be based around this or it isn't advice. It's direction. It's knowledge. It's crap. Every bit of it. So the advice is given for the family also. They should be patient in realizing that they're dealing with a sick person. If there's any indication that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. I bypass that. I don't do that at all. There are women in this fellowship that have been through this process, that know this book. They have followed along with the tapes. They've had an experience. I send them to them. I don't get into that. That's one direction I do not do. But here's one I do. Get an idea of his behavior. I don't want to hear about his acting out at this point at all or his drinking. I don't want to hear none of it. Tell me about your behavior. What happens to you when you're sober? How do you act then? How do you treat your wife? How do you how do you talk to her when you're inside of the home? When you're out to the restaurant and the lady messes up on your order and you're in a hurry and you'd like to hurry up and get to where you're going, how do you react? What's your behavior look like then? You know, or do you hide in self and be afraid if somebody calls you out on something in a meeting? Do you run and hide? What's your behavior like? What does that look like? I want to know all about it. I want an idea of what that looks like. Problems and background. You ever been to jail? You ever been to prison? You know, I mean, any of this. What does that look like? Where do you work? I mean, where did you work? Has the illness cost you your job? I know it has for many of us on this call tonight. I guarantee it has more than one time. And the seriousness of his condition, here's where I'm going to begin to talk about his drinking, his drugging, and his acting out. I want to know about the seriousness of your condition. Where is this taking you to? What's that look like for you? Let me share a little bit about what that looked like for me when I was in a hotel room in Shreveport, Louisiana, dying from self with my wife next to me begging me to tell her the truth. And I would not tell her the truth. And I could not tell her the truth. And I was trying to tell the truth. And I'd tell a little bit of the truth, but not the whole truth. And the seriousness of the impact of that and what that looked like and the crying and the tears. and the, Tell me about the seriousness of your condition. That's what I want to learn right here when I'm in this interview process. This is very important for me, too, his religious leaning. I want to know about his faith tradition. Not because I'm going to judge it, not because I'm going to try to change it, not because of any of that, because I need to know. I want to know what this looks like. What is your faith and power greater than yourself? God, Jesus, Muhammad, whatever it is, tell me about it. Because I'm not going to judge it, I promise you. That I, that's it's none of my business, other than I want to know why that is, or what that is. And how's that worked out for you, by the way? That's another question that I'm going to ask. Well, I do all of this. And I tell them that at the end of this interview process, I ask you all this, not to get in your business. I know it sounds like that because of the things I've been asking you. But this one sentence is going to sum it all up. I need this information to put myself in his place to see how I would like him to approach me if the tables were turned. All the way back to page 18 again. Remember, we seen who did the approaching here. That was us on the bottom paragraph of page 18. 
It says the man who is making the approach, that's us, has obviously had the same difficulty. So we want to cross-reference and tie this in. We're the one that's going to be making the approach. People tell me all the time that guy wants something. He wants what I got. He's going to have to come to me. He's going to have to approach me. That's not what my book says at all. And it backs it up again right here. I need this information. And we're on page 90 now. If anybody came in late, first paragraph, the bottom of that paragraph. I need this information to put myself in this place to see how I would like him to approach me if the tables were turned. This is the interview process. And I do this with every man, no matter what. Before we sit down and begin to work the 12 steps. Now, if he's been around for a long, long time, sometimes I'll bypass this, but not very often at all because I want to know where he's at and what's going on. Sometimes it's wise to wait. People would say, no, let's don't wait. You know, if they're, if they're serious, if they're ready to go, let's go right now. My book says, no, don't do that. It's wise to wait sometimes until he goes on another binge because he's most definitely going to, most likely. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it's better to risk it, and that's a direction. Don't deal with him when he's very drunk or if he's been acting out for a week. And a guy call me up and tell me, you know, hey, you know, I'm in the ninth step with my sponsor. I acted out yesterday. I'm like, you're far from the ninth step, dude. I promise you, you're far from the ninth step. And if you work with me, First thing, you know, you're going to have to get some time. You're going to have to corral that beast with this power greater than self. And you're going to have to get some time behind you, usually about 10 days. And if you can do that, then I want to come back to page 90 and I want to have a, I want to have a talk with you. I want to visit with you about some things. But it tells me there, don't deal with him when he's that way. Unless he's ugly and the family needs your help. I usually try to stay away from that. Wait for the end of the spree or at least for a lucid interval. And then let his family or friend ask him if he wants to quit. Well, my family asked me something like that. Absolutely, I want to quit. I'm ready today. Let's go. The quicker, the better. No, I want somebody who's experienced to drill me through this interview because they're going to know if I'm ready to quit. So, but here's the key to it. Will you go to any extreme to do so? Will you meet with me five days a week? one hour a day by phone to read through the first three or four chapters of this book. When we get to step four, there's three exercises laid out. Are you willing to do those without fail? I'm not talking about taking a day or two off or this or that. Are you ready to do this process? When we get into the third step, are you ready to go into inventory immediately? Are you ready to start digging to the emotional core of what's going on with you? Because it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. I promise it's going to hurt a lot. Anytime you pull poison out of the soul, a thorn, a fiery arrow, a poisonous arrow, a feather, whatever you want to call it, it hurts. But guess what? It heals. And if we don't pull it out, it never heals. So are we willing to go to any extreme to do so? If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to me as a person who has recovered, not just sober. I have recovered from a hopeless state of mind now. I have identified self. I realize that that's not me. I want that attention to be turned to me. This is the way that I can have attention on me the right way because I always had it on me the wrong way. So this is the right way for me to do that. You should be described to him as one of the fellowship who, as a part of their own recovery, try to help others. If you remember way back in the doctor's opinion, that's exactly what Bill Wilson done. 
And that was in the, the very front of the book of the doctor's opinion, which is on, what is that, 25XXV? If you look at the, it'd be the third paragraph. There's a short one and then another one. And then it says, in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery as part of his rehabilitation. He commenced to present that conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their family. And we see that here. All of this is leading up to our 12th step. This is what we're going to do. Once we've had this experience, this is how we're going to come at it. So we should be described to him in that way as part of their own recovery. And I need to remember that. This isn't the whole bottle of wax. Some people think just carry the message, carry the message, carry the message. No, that's only part. There is unity, there's recovery, and there's service. There's three areas, not just one. So as part of their own recovery, try to help others who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. And if you've just joined in or if you've been here for a few minutes and kind of got lost in the shuffle, we are on page 90 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the fourth edition. We're on the bottom paragraph. And it says this, if he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. I've had people tell me, I don't want to see you anymore, man. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to see you anymore. I couldn't accept that when I was early on. My ego was too big. You know, what do you mean you don't want to see me, man? I'm your brother. I'm the, yeah. Leave him alone, is what my sponsor told me. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be overanxious because that might spoil matters. Now, remember, we're still in the first visit. We haven't even agreed to sponsor this man by this point, or we shouldn't have. Now, I probably have a pretty good idea based off the top of page 90 whether I'm going to do that or not by now. But I want to remember this. Usually, the family should not try to tell your story. I've had people come in, and it would be a husband and a wife, and, of course, he would be the alcoholic or an addict, and she would be sitting in there, and she'd say, well, now let me tell you kind of what he does and how he is, and I'm just like, hold up, no. We're not going to do that. That's not your story to tell. That's his. And if he doesn't want to talk, that's fine. We'll pass and go to somebody else, but not you. You're not the one to tell that story. And I know that offends some women. They think that's my right, this, this. According to my book, don't do that. Because if you do, you're going to spoil matters. And it says, when possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. I rarely do that anymore, especially now. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, and we don't do a whole lot of that anymore, at least I don't, around where I'm at. Now, I've hauled a lot of guys to detox in different places and, and taken them to different institutions to try to get them help. But that's only if they're willing to do it. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but never forcibly unless he's violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he has something in the way of a solution. When your man is better, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. And for me, that's going to be only me. A lot of people say you need to take two or three people with you. You need to do. I try not to do that. You come in somewhere when I'm sick like that with two or three people, I got one thing on my mind. You're coming after me for some reason. And I'm not going to react very well to that. I want to go see that man alone. 
I'm going with a power greater than self that I have tapped into in this unsuspected inner resource, and there's no harm going to come to me, and I know that. I've been to some of the craziest places, <laughs> crazy, and uh, it's always been okay. Let the doctor, if you will, tell him that you have something in the way of a solution. So, though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he's under no pressure. If I find out you've talked to my family prior to coming to talk to me, you're not going to be talking to me. Because my mind's telling me, self is telling me, that you're going to go back and report to them everything that we talk about. I'm going to clamp up. I'm not telling you nothing about nothing. So these directions are put here for a reason. He will feel, there's the key word, he will feel he can deal with, with you without being nagged by his family. Call on him when he's still jittery. He may be more receptive when he's depressed. When is an alcoholic or an addict most willing? Get them while they're depressed. That gift of desperation is the greatest gift that people like you and I have. I don't know about you, but I know about me. And about me, when I'm that beaten down and broken and hurt, I'm ready. I'm going to do something, I promise. So I'm going to be way more receptive whenever I'm jittery and depressed. See your man alone if possible. See, there's why I do that. If possible, that's why I go alone. At first, engage in general conversation. I just kind of bring it up. Hey, how you doing, man? You know, I, I see where you're at, so I got a pretty good idea how you're doing. But, um, you know, I usually by now I probably know what he likes or something like this. If you're from Oklahoma, you like to hunt and fish and fight and drink whiskey and all this stuff. So, you know, I'm going to engage in a little general conversation, but we're not going to stay in that very long because I don't care much about a story. I really don't at all. I'm going to tell him enough about my drinking. You know, after a while, it says start to turn the talk to some phase of drinking. I don't get into a whole full-blown, this is my story. Let me tell you exactly what happened. People would do that to me. They'd come to me and talk for me a whole hour about them. And then they were ready to leave if I wasn't ready to make a decision. I had a sponsor like that once. I would drive all the way to Paris, Texas, which is about two and a half hours from here. And that dude would sit there and talk the whole time about himself. Man, I was broken. I mean, I needed to talk about some stuff. Man, I couldn't get a word in for that guy talking about himself. And it was like, that was probably good practice for me looking back in reality. But at the time, I didn't think so. It upset me quite a bit. But so anyway, it says, you know, tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences. And you probably need to know those. <laughs> and if you don't, then go through the process of this book. You're going to know him real well. Encourage him to speak about himself. You ain't going to have a hard time getting somebody to do that that's alcoholic or an addict. That's all they want to talk about is their self. That's our favorite subject. People tell me, hey, David, you want to come speak over here for an hour? You bet, man. What time? What time are we eating? What time are we going to be there? And I'd always start out my talk. You know, and my wife will confirm this. Tonight, I'm here to talk about the one thing that I love to talk about the most in this world, me. And then I say, oh, man, I'm just kidding with you guys and get a laugh out of them. But in my mind, shit, I'm serious about that. So, yeah, you ain't going to have a hard time getting him to speak about himself. You're probably going to have a hard time getting him to shut up speaking about himself. So if he wishes to talk, let him do so. Oh, my God. You know, sometimes that's a dangerous direction to take there. But it's good for him. And that's, that's the key. So, But here's why I'm going to do that. The same thing I did back over on page 90. It comes right back to it again. 
I want to get a better idea of how I ought to proceed from here, and this is going to tell me. I'm not, I don't want to dominate the conversation. I'm bad at doing that at times. I, I, you know, I have to be careful about that right here. But here's the direction if he's not communicative, and we're going to run into people like that quite a bit. Just give him a sketch of my drinking and acting out a career up until the time I quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. I don't need to start getting into God and we got to pray and we're going to do this. And we get over here, we're going to jump into inventory. Man, it's going to be some right and it's going to hurt, but you're going to be all right. Stay away from that. This is my experience. Stay away from that. Say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. If he's in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused me acting out, lusting, all of this stuff. You know, I don't want to give him such a horrifying story that it scares the hell out of me. He don't want to see me anymore, but I need to dwell on that. I really do. I think this is probably the most important direction for me, David G., in this part of the book. Be careful not to moralize the lecture. Because I can try to explain self to somebody who's not absolutely not ready to hear that. And it's going to turn them off completely. But if I talk about the trouble that lust and liquor and all of that has caused me. And then start talking about a symptom much deeper than that, which will come later on if we go through this process. Then I start grabbing his attention in a different way. And that's what I want to pay attention to. If his mood is light. Tell him some humorous stories of your escapades, not his, mine. And so that's kind of what I do. You know, I tell him about the time that I was 16 years old, you know, and ended up going to jail and, you know, how crazy I was. And I ran and hid in the bushes. And me and my cousin had on a couple of Army flight jackets that we had stole. We both had long hair back then. I had long hair back then, believe it or not. And so did he. And we looked alike. And they were after him, and we hid in the bushes, and, you know, they, they jerked me out of there, you know. Yeah, here's a long-haired dude. He fits this description. He's got on this jacket. It's him. Let's take him. I'm like, dude, it's not me. It's not me. I swear to God. And for the first time, I was really telling the truth about that. But, you know, it's stories like that that begins to, I mean, you at least get some to lighten up a little bit to where I can start talking about some of this. And then I ask him this question. Tell me about some of yours. And then we thus begin a conversation. And for me, this has been really, really a powerful way to come at somebody who's sick in a bed like this. So when he sees that you know all about the drinking game, notice how it doesn't say the recovery game. <laughs> I don't want to start throwing that in there on him. If I've got him in a light enough mood to talk, I want to stay with that. Then I'm going to begin to describe me, not him, me as the alcoholic or addict. Tell him how baffled I was, even sober. Go to meetings, don't drink. Hell, if I can go to meetings and don't drink, I don't need to go to meetings. I mean, if I can just not drink, that's not been my experience at all. Tell him how you finally learned that you were sick. It doesn't say that, that we are. It says that we were. <laughs> that's quite a promise right there. Give him account of the struggles you made to stop. I guarantee you, any one of us can have a hundred stories like that. Show him the mental twist that precedes the first drink. Remember where we learned that at? Chapter three of the book, more about alcoholism. And it showed us over and over and over, all the way through there. Ideas, concepts, beliefs, prejudice, attitudes, all this stuff. They showed us how the mental twist leads to the first drink. That's how I'm going to show him.
I'm not going to sit here and talk to him about it. If I got a book, and I probably do if I have a phone with me, if he's interested in hearing that, I'm going to show him where it's at. Exactly. And it says, we, and here it is. We suggest you do this. We've done it in the chapter on alcoholism, which is chapter three in this book. Remember, we're still in the first visit. <laughs> we haven't even got out of there yet. So if he's an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. I really don't want to ask him about his drinking at this point. Here it is. If we are satisfied he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. That's step one. Show him from your own experience. Don't tell him. Show him how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. Don't at this stage refer to the book unless he's seen it and wishes to discuss it. I think a lot of time we who have been through the book and are solid in the book and the book, it's the book, the book, the book, the book. I need to leave that out of it at this point. I really do. We're going to get into the book for sure. But at this point, I probably need to leave it out. Be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. That's not our job. Yeah, I kind of see from what you're saying here, you're probably alcoholic now. I don't know. I don't know. Let him draw his own conclusion. Remember Fred's story in Chapter 3. He drawed his own conclusion there. They let him. He got beat enough to where he drew his own conclusion of that. If he sticks to the idea, there's the, here's the self, that he can still control his drinking. If I'm laying in a hospital bed and the man's there talking to me about alcoholism, where in the hell would an idea come that I could still control and enjoy? But it does. It shows up. <laughs> Very much so. Tell him he possibly can if he's not too alcoholic, but insist that if he's severely afflicted, step one, there may be little chance that he can recover by himself. I'm going to go ahead and stop right there tonight. And I just wanted to first off say that I'm really grateful that you guys have allowed me to come here for 25 weeks to study the book with you in the way that we have. It's been great. It's been wonderful. Dennis, Ashley, if it had not been for you guys, this would not have been possible. I want to give a lot of thanks to my friends in Indonesia. Uh, the Bali Bucket Group. I'm so grateful that you guys suggested this study to begin with. That's just how this deal all got kicked off. And I just want you to know it's been wonderful, but I'm very grateful for what we've done here. You have given me six months of 2022 that definitely kept me clean and sober and, and lust free and all of that. So I'm very grateful to a power greater than self. And I hope what I've shared here with you up to this point in 25 weeks gives you a new outlook on the program as outlined the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So thank you for letting me share tonight. Good to be here. This concludes David's share on tonight's chapter, but we encourage you to keep listening as he answers questions from the audience and shares additional experience, strength, and hope. I was wondering on page 90 when it says you need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you'd like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Could you give an example of where, by going through the interview process, it, I, I guess that, that was realized for you, like maybe changed how you would approach this person pass? Thank you, Adam, for your question. And, um, yeah, let me try to do that. I, you know, after a lot of the guys that, that would not so much ask me or the guy that did this process with me didn't really ask me so much, you know, all those other questions. The one thing he was looking for is that he would want me to, you know, if he was in my place, was one, mainly willingness, where I was at, and the willingness to go through this work. 
But another thing is, you know, if, if I come to you and, and you and I are doing this interview process and you're struggling, for me, that's how I would want to be approached. Somebody who had these questions from the top of 90 all the way down to here whenever I'm struggling the way that I was at that time. That's a great question, and it's one that's kind of hard to answer, really. But, you know, the information that he's going to give me, one, about his faith tradition, because I'm not going to try to jar him and change his mind on that. If that change is to come, that's going to be between he and God, not me, he and God. So I need that information in order to put myself in his shoes, because if he was asking me that same question, how would I want to answer that? And so same way with about getting an idea of his behavior. You know, I need to know about that because if the tables were turned around, I mean, would I tell him completely about my behavior? Uh, there again, that's a, that's a very hard question to answer, but that's some of the experience that I have on that. So the information really for me is not so much that I'm getting into the middle of his business with all these questions, and it definitely sounds like that but it's to see how I would want him to sponsor me if it was turned around the other way. So I'm not sure if that's a answers your question completely, but that's my experience on it, Adam. Thanks. Um, my question has to do with uh, what to do when uh, someone comes into the group and then they leave. Um, here in Brazil, we have members who are very active for a period, then they relapse and they leave the group. Some of us believe that when a person leaves, uh, they, they are in violation of uh, the third uh, tradition. They do not have the requirement for membership, which is a desire to stop lusting uh, or whatever compulsion. Uh, but some people uh, think that we should call this person, be in contact, and as much as possible encourage the person to come back. So I would like to, um, to hear your experience, strength, and hope on that. I, I hope I was clear. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Maria, for your question. I just go by what it says at the top of 90 there. You know, if he doesn't want to stop, I don't waste time trying to persuade him to do it. I don't borrow them from the group. I've never done anything like that. You know, that the tradition says, you know, that, you know, it's those that have a desire to stop drinking in order or lusting or like you said, whatever it is. So, you know, if that desire is there and, and I cut off any source of them coming back to somewhere whenever they do finally have that desire, then I, I think, I know at least for me, that'd be signing my death warrant if I had somewhere I couldn't come back to because of rules and I don't see anywhere in our traditions where any of that is um, says that you know it, in fact it in the beginning if, if you read in the beginning of this book it said you know those that had an honest desire to stop the word honest was taken out of that for a reason because most of us don't have an honest desire when we get here we think we do but we don't really have that so I don't think for me, for one thing, I'm not going to chase after somebody who's not wanting to do this, but at the same time, I'm not going to block the door for whenever they're ready to come back. So thanks for your question.